Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Mapes. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Pete Parker, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fly fishing for king salmon in Alaska. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we'll be broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Pete a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Pete your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll be trying to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about one hour after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Pete Parker about those heavyweight king salmon in Alaska. The R.L. Winston Rod Company is the maker of the revolutionary Boron 2X, the first and only fly rods that are both delicate yet powerful and weigh up to one-third less than any others. Second-generation boron graphite composites allow us to build lighter, more responsive rods while maintaining outstanding fish-fighting power. Go to your local fly shop and ask to cast the Boron 2X, offered in three through six weights. Then enter our Cast a Winston Sampler Contest. You could win up to six Winston rods. Visit www.winstonrods.com for contest details and to locate the nearest Winston dealer. Cast a Winston at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. Before we introduce Pete, we'd like to let you know about the great gifts we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion, a premier fly fishing magazine, and two pairs of tickets to one of the international sportsmen's expositions. So you have three chances to win tonight, so stick with us. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which is at askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Pete's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. Pete Parker seems to know just about everybody in fly fishing. Of course, he did get his start in this game at five years of age. That's when he caught his first fly-caught trout, a California golden trout. And he has been tying flies since the 1940s. Safe to say he's covered a lot of ground between those beginnings and his current attention to salmon in Alaska. Pete's fly patterns range from the traditional to the more exotic, and they include such patterns as Pete's prop fly, Pete's slider, the tuna helper, and Pete's mackerel. His flies have been featured in books, magazines, and museums, including the National Federation of Fly Fishers Museum and the American Museum of Fly Fishing. He is director of fly tying theaters for the International Sportsman's Expo shows, and he's a contract tire for Umpqua Feather Merchants. Pete has fished many quarters of the globe for many species, and he even holds four IGFA Tippet Class world records on the fly. He has been a co-founder of a chapter of Trout Unlimited, and he's a pro staff advisor for several manufacturers. Throughout all this, Pete has made his experience available to others. He's a frequent speaker at regional and national fly fishing venues, and he can be found helping anglers enjoy their quest for trophy fish in his capacity as a guide at the Good News River Lodge 
in southwest Alaska. Tonight, Pete Parker will be giving us the benefit of his many years' experience when he answers our questions about king salmon. Welcome, Pete. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. Very glad to be here, and, and welcome to all of our listeners. And I hope Absolutely. we can uh, do a little instruction and be a little entertaining as well. Well, I know Pete can be entertaining. He's made me laugh many times. And I know he knows a lot of people because at the last Fly Fishing Retailer show, as we walked around, I think we were looking for Chico Fernandez, and and we couldn't get but 20 feet, and somebody would walk up to us and say, Pete, and walk another 20 feet and, and another Pete. And he does know everyone, I think. So, um, Pete, you got a lot of friends out there, but I think you might have a few enemies, too, with some of the questions we got into. Uh-huh. So, uh, at least some really good friends that like to rib you, so uh, so we'll have fun with that. Well, uh, Pete, I think what we want to do is start with the, um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna talk about a lot of things tonight. We're gonna talk about salmon, not only king salmon, but I'll have you fill us in on some of the other types of salmon that are available in Alaska, and then um, also locations uh, up in Alaska, equipment. We'll talk about we'll talk about flies, and and Pete is an excellent fly tire. And has a lot of his own patterns that have, he's developed over the years. And we do have some pictures on the site that I'll direct you to as well. Um, and then we're going to also talk about um, uh, presentation strategies uh, for the kings, as well as hooking, fighting, landing them, and also how to plan a trip, whether you want to do it on a budget or, or you've got uh, a lot of money you want to spend. You can, you can do it either way in Alaska, and, and Pete will go through that with us as well. And then a few miscellaneous things as well. So that's kind of the layout for tonight. Uh, we ought to have a lot of fun here. So let's start out, Pete. Um, let's, let's talk about the different types of salmon in Alaska, you know, the ones that call Alaska home. And uh, maybe you can kind of educate us a little about the different kinds and, and their life cycles, that kind of thing. Sure. We basically have five types of salmon uh, that frequent Alaskan waters, starting off with king salmon or Chinook. Um, the uh, chum salmon, which are also called dog salmon, uh, they're in there uh, late June through July and August and uh, will hang out uh, through September and sometimes into October of each year. We have sockeye from late June through July, and some will hang out up and through August. We have pink salmon late June, July, and early August of each year and silver salmon, late July, August, September, and a little bit of early October. The kings will generally arrive sometimes as early as May, but typically in mid-June and will last through the end of July. They will still be seen on many of the rivers in August and September, but they're bright red at that point and generally not uh, a target for uh, uh, fly fishing. Okay, so the kings are the ones that uh, go by the name Chinooks. Yes. Okay. And could you give us a little bit of a rundown on the the life cycle of a salmon, what uh, what it is that they do? Sure. Uh, one of the reasons kings get to be so large is that they are among the oldest uh, in the uh, the life cycle. They will spend up to three years in freshwater after they hatch, and go from one to six years in the ocean. And all that time, they're feeding and growing. So they, many of them can reach the three-digit mark on uh, size, uh, 100 pounds plus. 
those aren't typically found in our you know, uh, river systems. They're occasionally caught in some of the bigger rivers like the Kenai in Alaska. Uh, a good river, that one I happen to guide on, is the Good News River. Uh, we will catch frequently 50 pounds plus salmon, at least one or two a week. The average size being probably 30 pounds, 35 pounds. But king salmons, uh, up three to seven years in the freshwater or in the ocean, they'll be seven years old by the time they return to the, their birthplace. Chum salmon will immediately go to the ocean after they're hatched. They'll spend three to four years, and their average size will be 10 pounds. Now, on the good news, we rarely catch chum salmon up to 17 pounds, but that's a huge chum salmon. Sockeye, one to two years spent after they hatch, and then two to three years in the ocean. And uh, sockeye, I guess, would average 10 pounds. Uh, on the good news, that's what they average. Pink salmon go immediately to the ocean or begin their, their uh, downstream uh, uh, voyage to seek the ocean. They only spend about 18 months in the ocean and then return. Uh, that's one of the reasons why pinks are quite small on average. Uh, silver salmon spend about one year in the freshwater and two to three years in the ocean. And silver salmon, we get many in the 20-pound range on the Good News River. Uh, that, that may or may not be the average for the other rivers in Alaska. Uh, I've fished the uh, uh, the Ugashik and several other rivers in Alaska, and the silver seem to average uh, smaller, uh, 12, 14 pounds on average. Well, it seems that those those kings do get huge. Uh, folks, if you go to um, Pete's speakers page on our website, uh, where off the home page it says more about Pete Parker, you'll see a couple of fish from last summer. Uh, one is with one of Pete's clients when he was guiding, and he'll tell you more about that later. And also, uh, Pete's daughter came up to visit him, and uh, and she's got an armful there, too, to look at. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also looking at a picture in a book here, uh, 1985 World Record King. Uh, I don't think this was, I don't know if this was on a fly or not, but um, uh, but it was 97 pounds, 4 ounces. And the picture, that was on, on the, gear. Pardon? That was on gear, yeah. not on the fly. Right, but that's still a huge fish, and that was on the Kenai River, like you were talking about. So I think it's kind of famous for kings, isn't it, Pete? Yes, it is. Yeah, and um, a little bit different part than the Bristol Bay area of Alaska, but um, that's more central, uh, out of Anchorage. And uh, the good news is is out in Bristol Bay, out uh, southwestern uh, Bristol Bay drainage out there. Um, when we're looking at the salmon coming in now, they have the different seasons, and uh, they, there may be some runs crossing over each other. Uh, so, you know, how, how do you tell the difference in, in look and, and so forth when you're when you're fishing? You know, that's a very difficult thing to do. Quite often, king salmon will look at when they're in their bright silver or chrome phase. They have a dark or black ring right around their lips. And that's about the only way that you can tell them from, say, a silver or, uh, 
or a sockeye. Uh, they will all have that bright chrome salmon-y look to them. It's not until they begin to change colors that you can really quickly identify them. Even chum salmon will have the look of a, of a uh, conventional silver or sockeye uh, uh, until you can barely make out the par marks on chum salmon. Sockeye, of course, get that bright red with the green head when they get their spawning colors, and their teeth are very, very uh, pronounced. Uh, pink salmon, uh, about the only way you can tell is from size, and the peduncle, or the area just before the tail fin, is very, very small. I know that that's hardly a really good description, but you can typically wrap your fingers around their tail section there very easily, and their flesh has a softer feel to it. Uh, silver salmon, of course, uh, remain uh, uh, silver uh, through pretty much through the run, and uh, by that time the kings have turned bright red, and that's about the you know you can tell silvers that way. Yeah, and you've got the different seasons. So silvers aren't usually till August, right? And then, right. Um, and then you've got the kings are usually the first of the run, aren't they? In yeah, the, in the June? kings will come in typically first. In fact, this season uh, we opened on the 26th to the 27th of June. The, we opened the lodge to guests, and the day before we were out searching for fish, and there were no salmon in the river. Wow. None of that the good news system. <laughs> that was bad news. That was uh, <laughs> kind of scary. The uh, lodge owner said, don't worry, fellows, they'll be here. And sure enough, the next day, uh, <laughs> the kings were there, and that's that one fellow that uh, my very first client, uh, that fish that you see there in the picture on my page, is just over 50 pounds on a 10-weight fly rod and a size 2 hook on a uh, fuchsia bunny leech, and that fish jumped seven times. Now, kings don't typically jump. They're usually a dogged pull and kind of a bulldog, uh, very, very powerful pull, but that particular fish jumped, went airborne like, like a rainbow or like a silver. And uh, I tell you, when you're... When you're manning the net and worried about landing the fish for your client, and that's the fish of a lifetime for that client, I was sweating bullets each time that fish jumped. But uh, <laughs> luckily, we uh, we got him landed and got his picture taken or her picture taken, and then released her for important business further upstream. Sure. Now, when you get kings in hand, they're they're the ones that have the black roof of the mouth, right? Yes, it, they are. Okay, okay. Well, in terms of just uh, kings in general, do they inhabit all the rivers in Alaska? No. Uh, they're pretty much south of the Yukon River. Uh, kings will come into, uh, um, I've heard them coming into northern California rivers. Of course, Oregon and Washington has some king incursions. Uh, all the way up uh, the uh, coastline of uh, B.C. and uh, Alaska up as far north as the Yukon, with the major run being the uh, Kenai right next to Anchorage, probably has the largest run of kings. 
But that is the most accessible and also the most, well, many people call it a zoo. During king season, it can be very crowded and uh, because it's so accessible and it's easy to drive to. I've seen that firsthand on the Kenai Peninsula. It can be like those pictures you see of the east coast, coast yeah. on opening day for trout. Um, so there is, since since the Alaska became <laughs> navigable, <laughs> in that they paved the road all the way up there, you can get a lot of uh, motorhomes and stuff up there, and a lot of people drive when they when they didn't used to drive up there. But uh, yeah, that's that's uh, I've seen those crowds there. Now, so so, when is the when, when would be the range then for kings? If you're planning a trip, and you and and usually you got to plan about a year in advance, don't you, Pete? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, when when would you think about a time frame? I know it's not exact, and I know that each river could be a little bit different. But what would be the range? The Fourth of July is a prime target date. It is on the good news, and I know that there's kings in the Kenai. Um, a little bit before that, but uh, the 4th of July is a good target date. And probably the best thing to do is to work with the lodge you're going up with or the guide service or whatever to try to find out what they think is the best time and, and work with them. I yeah. Uh, the good news, a river lodge that I guide for uh, has a, a less expensive price than what they consider to be off weeks. And when my daughter came up, it was during one of those, what should have been a slow time. But this particular year, the kings were late. Everything was late. Uh, The ice out of the rivers was about a month uh, later than usual. Uh, The salmon runs were all later than expected. But uh, there were still bright chrome kings coming up the river the last week in July. And that's unusual. Usually there will be in the river, resident fish already in the river, but still coming in on each tide were these bright chrome huge fish. And towards the end of the run, the fish seemed to get bigger. So, uh, I mean, we had some incredible days, and there were very, very few guests at the lodge. Now, if, uh, if you do happen to hit it wrong, what other species of fish are there up there to, for someone to spend some time on waiting for the kings? The resident rainbows are always fun, and they have huge rainbows in most of the river systems. Um, you can catch uh, big bows off of the, uh, say, Tularic Creek running into Lake Iliamna. Uh, we have resident bows on the good news that are uh, quite often double-digit fish, uh, seven or eight pounders are are very common, and um, grayling, Arctic grayling. Uh, the current world record for Arctic grayling is, is out of the good news. Uh, there are several rivers in Alaska, the Ugashik, the good news, that have huge grayling population, a very big fish and numerous. So you've got that, and in some areas, uh, there might be pike in the tidal waters, or marshy areas. Um, there are other fish to target. And then there's chum salmon, which are, thank goodness for the chum. The reason they're called chum is that they're everybody's friend, everybody's chum. Uh, they're very easy to catch. They put up a great fight. They're not very good to eat, uh, 
but they're a tremendous amount of fun. Later in the season, if the king has run has slacked off or whatnot, Dolly Vardens uh, have a run that's incredible. Dolly fishing is is tremendous fun. Um, so there's always there's always uh, some other critter to go after, even if you haven't hit it exactly right. Well, now one of the questions came in from uh, Mr. McNair in Pennsylvania, and wants to know. Which which one of those do you think is uh, the fish in Alaska is the biggest challenge as a fisherman or or as a fly tire? I think the king. Uh, silvers are actually very easy, and you can catch forty or fifty of them in a day. Uh, the same with the uh, uh, sockeyes are difficult to catch only because it's difficult to get them to take a fly. They will take a fly, but uh, Typically, they're they're not interested in feeding as such. Uh, king salmon are big, powerful. Uh, you have to be uh, you have to have your house in order to go after them. You have to know how to set the hook, how to fight them properly, uh, keep the rod tip pointed at the water, and um, they're just that's the biggest challenge for me, and it's the one that I enjoy the most. Okay. And well, it's also very difficult. They can be difficult fish to t uh, take a fly. One year you might have a design of a fly, as I have, and they just eat it like crazy. The next year they could care less and just give you the cold shoulder. Now you've got to come up with something else. Sure, sure. We've got a question from Stan Friedman, who uh, Roger alluded to the fact that there can be some crowded conditions. Could you give us a sense of the... Oh, crowding and how one avoids the crowds uh, if, when the kings come in? Okay, the simplest answer is to, there are several uh, services available in Anchorage that will fly you out to nearby spots uh, for not a whole lot of money. Uh, these That's the first step. The ideal step would be to go to a river like the Ugashik or the Good News, which, for instance, on the Good News, we're the only lodge on the river, and if you see another angler at all during the day, it's unusual. Uh, it's a huge, huge area to fish, and once you get away from the cities, that's the condition that you're looking for. Now, right around the metropolitan areas of Anchorage, you can still get away, and there's a couple ways to do it. Either have a friend or know somebody, one of the locals there in Alaska, who can either give you a tip or act as your guide, or uh, start calling around and talk to some of the air services. There are, uh, there are literally hundreds of them available, and uh, oh, a good book to get would be The Visitor's Guide to Alaska. And uh, you can get that at the, uh, uh, there's a website for uh, the state of Alaska, and they produce this visitor's guide every year, and I believe it's free. I have a 2006 edition in front of me, and there are hundreds, literally, of ads for people offering uh, air service, where they'll fly you out 50, 100, 200 miles away, and uh, get, get you into a day's fishing where you're not facing those crowds. 
let's let's take a quick break here, Pete. When we return, we'll be talking more with Pete Parker about fly fishing for king salmon in Alaska. Mud snails, zebra mussels, didymo, Asian carp, just to name a few. Other than loss of habitat, one of the main challenges to the future of fishing worldwide is the introduction of harmful non-native aquatic species. Attention to cleaning and drying gear and equipment, including waders, boots, uh, and trailers, uh, is simple to do and effective. Never release plants, fish, or animals into a body of water unless they came from that body of water, and embrace your stewardship responsibilities as an outdoor enthusiast. Because if you don't protect your waters, who will? Go to our homepage on askaboutflyfishing.com and scroll down to the bottom where you'll see a red banner for Stop Aquatic Hitchhikers. Click there to become informed and help take action. Protect your waters. Stop Aquatic Hitchhikers. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Pete Parker about fly fishing for king salmon in Alaska. If you'd like to ask Pete a question... Go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Pete your most important question. We'll receive these questions immediately, and we're trying to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Uh, Pete, uh, before we get back to the topic at hand, tell me some of the things that you're up to these days. Well, I'm getting ready for show season, which is always fun. Uh, we have our first International Sportsman's Exposition in San Mateo uh, the second week in January, and then we immediately do uh, Sacramento and then Denver and then Phoenix and Salt Lake City. So that's a chance for me to meet with friends and people I haven't seen for a year. It's also a chance to get a look at the latest techniques in fly tying, and I, uh, uh, I learn a lot. It's a wonderful opportunity for me being on the camera and seeing all of these great fly tires. And as a result, I've managed to steal or uh, uh, borrow a few patterns here and there that really work well. <laughs> the, uh, other than that, I'm working at uh, Umpqua Feather Merchants uh, right now and uh, more almost retired, but not quite. Uh, and that's what I'm up to. Well, Pete, uh, I know you are a, uh, an icon at the ISC shows, and uh, folks, if, if you go to one of the shows, and we're giving tickets away to some of those shows to, today, if you go to the shows, go to the fly tying area where they do these demos, and, and, and ask for Pete. You'll see him there. You can't miss him. Uh, and he's going to be in Denver, San Mateo, and Sacramento, right, Pete? Yes. Yeah, they, he won't be in, in Salt Lake or Phoenix. They won't be doing the fly tying theater there this year, but... Uh, um, but be sure to look Pete up and, uh, and, and get to know Pete. And he, he knows every fly tire I think there is, just about. So <laughs> he can get you in touch and, and, and get you learning what you need to know. Well, um, Pete, um, you know, we were just talking about drive versus fly, but uh, Dick Johnson in Redding, California, did ask, you know, uh, how much of king salmon fishing has to be fly-in versus drive you can drive to Alaska, and you and you don't need to take a plane to fish, right? That's that's true. And, that's true. And, and you are limited, however, because the roadways are primarily into Anchorage and, and south of there, and that's about yeah. it. There's a movement afoot right now, and uh, 
It's a change. Fly fishermen in particular are using the big two-handed rods, spay rods or two-handed casting rods, uh, 12, 14-foot rods. Uh, because you're limited quite often to fishing from the bank if you don't have access to a boat, you can cover a lot more water with these big sticks, and that's becoming more and more popular. Uh, being able to reach out and uh, get to waters with, that were unavailable fishing for bank fishermen in the past with a conventional one-handed rod. Even if you're a really good caster, it's very, very hard to get over 100 feet with a one-handed rod. And uh, the spay rod is one way to go, and those people, that's just beginning. That's just starting to happen as we the last year or two. Um, you can uh, also uh, uh, rent a car and uh, investigate uh, I would just drive around uh, finding smaller rivers, not the big well-known names one, named ones, but there's public access to many, many uh, bodies of water in Alaska that will give you a shot at uh, king salmon for very little expense, very little outlay of cash. So you feel that uh, a person could have an opportunity to uh, have success with kings without a guide? Be difficult. If, uh, of course, the best way is with the guide. Even on a strange river here in the lower 48, it's always best to spend the, the money and hire a guide at least for your first visit. Mm -hmm. Once you kind of learn the ropes, that's a different story. Then, then you might be able to, but you could still have success without a guide. Let's say if you had a friend uh, who'd been up there before or uh, a float trip, uh, one step above just Renting a car in Anchorage and driving is to get a float trip where they will drop you off at a given location, pick you up in a float plane a week later down down river. That's an excellent spot for uh, to get into good kings, and not a whole lot of money. Those trips are the most economical, and that's how I fished Alaska the first couple times that I went, and uh, it was a great experience. And there's always someone on those float trips, because there will be six or seven in the group who has been there before or at least can be a mentor or show you the ropes a little bit. Um, that's a, that's a, a good way to break into Alaskan fly fishing. I think, I, I think you've already told us this inadvertently, but um, we've had a couple of questions here, Pete, on what's your favorite river in Alaska? Uh, I'm in love with the good news. Sounds like uh, I have love affairs with river systems. I loved the Bighorn for a while. Then I switched my allegiance to the Green River in Utah. And for Alaska, uh, I fished the Ugashik, uh, Tularic, uh, Togiak, Alagnak. But the good news is just a great river for kings. It's a wonderful river for kings. It's pristine. Um, it's, and that can be floated. Uh, there's uh, one outfit that the river is actually about 80 miles long. There's a large lake, and you can be dropped off at that lake, and you take a week to float down this uh, the river, and you get picked up at the Good News uh, Indian Village there at the just before it empties into the ocean, and that's a fairly uh, inexpensive trip. Since you bring up the, the length of a river, Pete, uh, do you fish for kings differently 
uh, upriver, uh, away from the salt, than you do toward the mouth? A little bit. Uh, you still use uh, typically uh, sink tip lines. I prefer a full sinking line. Or you can use a shooting head, sinking head. Uh, a trip to Alaska, you should probably go with a, a 300, a 400, a 500, and a 600 grain shooting head. Mm. Uh, that'll handle most current flows in most situations. Um, typically, you'll find the uh, kings located in the mid-range. Say the river is 10 feet deep. The kings will, on average, be 5 feet below the surface in the middle of that water column. You cast and count down, and when you first, then when you get a strike, of course, then you know where they're, they're lo what level they're located, just like... Uh, any other fishing, you're fishing at the mouth of the, at where the river empties in to the ocean, in that tidal zone, quite often the water is turbid. It might be even slightly discolored. So I fish big flies that move a lot of water and bright flies. As I move further upstream and I get into gin clear water, then I downsize the flies, where I might have a uh, fly five, six inches long with a four-aught hook down near the, uh, in the tidal water. Further upstream, I, I'll go down as low as a, a number two hook with a fuchsia bunny leech. And uh, I'm looking at those two flies sitting together here on my desk, and there's a great size variation. So I guess downsizing is a good idea as you get into clearer water. I think we should make note, if, if a person hasn't been to Alaska before, that we're, and, and you're talking about these, these you know, shooting head and sinking tip lines, that these rivers are big up there. I mean, yes. compared to the rivers we have down here in the Rocky Mountain areas and, and maybe some of the um, East Coast uh, rivers, uh, these, are, these are big, strong rivers up there that you have to deal with many times. Yes, and, that's true. And, and that's the reason for the, like you said, the different currents and so forth, right? Yes. When you're fishing a river, you try to set up on what's called a seam. And it's very readily apparent on the surface. You can tell a seam, uh, just a different where, um, where a fast current flow is next to or adjacent to a very slow or slack water, there will be a little seam. There might even be foam running along that seam. And that's typically where the fish will hold. So you're, you're looking to set up on a seam, and that's the advantage of fishing out of a boat. You can set up upstream on a seam like that, and your fly is always in the hot zone. Uh, conversely, when you're fishing from the bank, you're, you're coming across that seam, usually at a 90-degree angle. Your fly is only in the sweet spot for a few seconds as it passes through that, that current seam. So you're, you increase your chances of hookup tremendously if you can get a boat. Uh, or if you can get out on a point of land or something and cast into one of those current seams. And they're readily, you can see them, choppy water on one side and mirror-like dead calm on the other. They're easy to spot. Okay, well that, that answers uh, several of the questions that we've had uh, come in. Uh, one a question I have uh, for myself, uh, Pete, is you mentioned gin clear water. Now, in in southwestern Alaska, do you not have glaciers that 
that permanently siltate the, uh, the, the, the waters? You do. And kingfishing in those waters are, is not as productive. Okay. Uh, occasionally you'll get uh, very, you'll get water disturbed with uh, high tides or uh, neat tides. Or, um, and when you get into that where there's absolutely no visibility, you might as well uh, pack it in. Uh, you can continue to fish, but I would turn the boat around. I would head downstream. And as soon as I got into water where there was no visibility, I'd turn the boat around and get up to where there, at least there was some visibility. Otherwise, the clients would spend a fruitless day fishing. Sure, sure. Now, you talked about uh, kings generally suspending in the water column. J just out of curiosity, is there ever an occasion for a dry fly approach to kings? You know, I've never... I've never seen it, but I'm, that doesn't mean you, it, it couldn't occur. Sure. Uh, the traditional method is using the wet streamer type approach. Uh, however, I have seen sockeye take a dry fly, and they say that sockeye won't, you know, won't go after a fly. But some latent, uh, some <laughs> latent memory, uh, uh, this thing came up, a uh, 12-pound or 10-pound uh, sockeye, and ate a dry fly. I'll be I was fishing for grayling at the time. <laughs> so I've never caught a king on a dry, though. Well, we'll talk more about that in a few minutes when we talk about uh, flies and, and maybe the, the, you know, the, the theories behind are they eating or are they just angry or that kind of thing. But before we get into flies, let's, let's talk about, uh, let's sort out the equipment a little bit more here. Um, you talked about lines and um, uh, shooting heads. You talked that's the line you want to use, mm -hmm. and, and with sinking tip, correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, what about rods, reels, that kind of thing, backing? Okay. Let's start with the with the rods. Um, a ten weight is ideal for most king fishing. However. I occasionally go armed also with a 12 weight, and the reason for that is that you can defeat the fish quicker. It's actually easier on the fish, and you can get them back into the water without so much stress on them. Now, a 10 weight will work, but you might spend two hours landing a big king, hmm. where you can spend 35, 40 minutes with a 12 weight and bring it to the boat, get it in the net, get its picture, and get it back in the water. Uh, eight weights for uh, silvers, uh, but a ten weight is ideal for uh, kings. If you had only one rod to bring, you should bring a ten weight. Um, if you have a twelve weight, I would stick it in there just in case. If the kings happen to be running on the bigger side, you'll, you'll, you'll thank yourself for bringing that along. Now, reel, any good reel with a good drag system doesn't have to be an expensive reel. doesn't have to be an Abel or a Charlton or a Seamaster or anything like that, although that's perfect. But you can use uh, some of the newer reels like Okuma, uh, inexpensive, 35 40 bucks. Uh, we used them at the lodge this summer, and they worked fine. Uh, fly lines, uh, Rio happens to be made, in my opinion, making an excellent fly line at the sink line. Uh, 
at this time. They have a model called the steelhead, and it also works on salmon. Uh, they'll have different sink rates, sink tips, um, lots of backing. Uh, these fish are powerful. Uh, the first hookup that I made, the fish was 250 yards out. Mm. That's uh, a little scary if you're just hooked up with a simple little trout reel. <laughs> uh, I'll say. Let's take uh, just a quick break here, Pete. When we return, Pete will be answering more of your questions about catching those big kings in Alaska. Lefty Cray, Dave Whitlock, Bob Clouser, Gary Borger, Jack Dennis, all of these and more fly fishing greats have been involved in the International Sportsman's Expositions over the past 30 years. Each of the five ISC events is the market's largest sportsman's event all year, featuring up to 600 ex exhibitors, hundreds of seminars, and special events, including ISE's own Best of the West Distance Casting Contest and new, uh, the Iron Fly Tying Contest. Visit www.sportsexpos.com -E for seminar schedules and for more information. Come meet the legends and those that soon may be at ISC events in California, Colorado, Arizona, and Utah. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Pete Parker about fly fishing for king salmon in Alaska. If you'd like to send a question in for Pete, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Pete your most important questions. We're receiving your questions promptly and trying to answer as many of them as possible tonight. Uh, Pete, you've got to tell me, I'm curious about this iron fly tying contest at the ISE that Roger just mentioned. Yeah, that's going to be great fun. Uh, I'll be hosting that. Uh, we test marketed this as an idea last year in our San Mateo show. And myself and Bob Clouser and Ray Martinez participated we were given a closed, sealed bag of materials, and we opened the bag. Uh, we weren't allowed to see what was in it ahead of time, and there was an assortment of hooks and, I don't know, 75 or 80 different pieces of fly tying material, and you had to design, tie, and finish a fly in seven minutes. Hmm. And then to, to complicate it even further, they threw in a secret ingredient, kind of like the TV show Iron Chef. And that secret ingredient, which happened to be a bright pink pair of bedroom slippers, had to be a prominent part of your fly. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, Bob Clouser was tying a Clouser minnow, of course, and uh, didn't have any lead eyes, so he tied a bow tie. I mean, it was just a lot of fun. <laughs> And uh, we're going to do that at each of the shows this year. And Umpqua Feather Merchants has been very gracious, a uh, place where I'm now working. They're supplying all the materials. So, And I can tell you there's going to be even a wider variety of materials this year than we had last year, enough to really confuse a guy. <laughs> Time limit will still be seven minutes, and you're going to see some beads of sweat pop out on some of the legends. We're going to involve Dave Whitlock. We're going to involve... All of our top fly tires in this thing, and it's a lot of fun. So be sure to to look for that for when that's going to happen. We're going to have one of them on opening day and one of them on closing day of each show. Uh, that'll be fun. 
Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. Pete Jerry in Alaska um, asks about preferred knots for king salmon and line to leader tippet to fly combinations. Um, are you going to share that secret you told me about tonight about uh, you how you rig up? Okay, well, why don't you tell them? Okay, to start off with, uh, butt section or leader to fly line. Uh, I do not like nail knots. That's the most common method. Uh, nail knots, I've seen them fail quite often when fishing in salt water. I prefer a, uh, a different knot where you take the fly line and form a U and wrap the leader material or the monofilament around and around, mm -hmm. pull it back out through, and uh, that prevents the leader from pulling the cover off of the fly line. The, uh, the, the edge that I really recommend, uh, there's a fellow over in Thailand who's supplying bimini tippets, he calls them. These are being sold through Umpqua, through Orvis, Cortland, Scientific Angler, Offshore Angler, Bass Pro, uh, bimini tippets are class tippet. Let's say you're fishing with 12-pound tippet. You'll have a 42-inch section of class tippet, a bimini, a permanently closed loop on that bimini, and that whole arrangement acts as a shock absorber. Uh, gives you a little bit of an edge. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I held the record on Giant Trevally for about eight or nine years, and uh, it, I, I guarantee it was that bimini tippet that, uh, that gave me the edge on landing that fish. Uh, I caught big yellowfin, marlin, all, all type of fish using that, that terminal tackle, and it's a tremendous advantage to the angler. Well, this is something that Pete showed me tonight, uh, in fact, and uh, had me had me work this in my hands, and uh, you can actually see the give in it, uh, or that that kind of springy effect that it has. Mm -hmm. So you you know when you get that first hit, it just has a little bit more give than it would otherwise, and it's it's something that's visible that you can see, actually see. Now tying one of those things, uh, I'm not sure about yet because <laughs> Pete's going to show me, but uh, it, you might be better off purchasing them, like he's saying. They 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 do. Looks like they would require quite a bit of time to create. So, uh, but uh, but that that's a, a secret to those hookups, huh, Pete? You bet. That and uh, uh, setting the hook. Uh, let's talk about that for a second. This is really really important. Uh, typically, people who come to Alaska are uh, trout fishermen, and their idea of setting the hook is just raising the rod tip and maybe giving it a little jerk. And we've had occasions where at the end of the day at the guides meeting, we might have a boat with 12 hookups and one fish landed. The next boat, 15 hookups, one fish landed. And that's the problem with setting the hook. You point the rod right down the fly line, right at the fish. You grasp the fly line, and in your left hand, if you're right-handed, hold the rod firmly and pull back. It's called a slip strike. You pull back three times, and then in addition to that, I still give it, a, if the fish is swimming to my left, 
or to my right, I will pull the rod sideways with the tip pointed at the water opposite the direction the fish is swimming. And I'll do that three times. That will guarantee firm hookups. The slip strike and a little extra uh, so, so you're the really socking it to them. Sweeping the rod tip. Yeah, yeah, you're really socking it to them. What, what weight tippet are you using, Pete? I like 12-pound. I fish just about everything with 12-pound tippet. Um, on uh, bonefish and things, of course, I'll go down lighter, but 12-pound uh, tippet is uh, in soft mono. Uh, you can catch just about any critter there is in the ocean uh, on it. Uh, I've caught marlin on it. I've caught yellowfin tuna. I've caught uh, wahoo. Uh, although I did go to 16-pound tippet. For, I had a 51-pound wahoo. That's the picture on the website. That was on 16-pound tippet. I made a concession there. But 12-pound uh, uh, is my overall favorite. Well, we're talking about equipment for, for big fish that uh, have uh, tremendous pulling power. I have several questions that, that kind of relate to that, but uh, let me just see if I can amalgamate them into one. Um, Greg Simpson up in Rapid City, South Dakota, is wondering if there's a particular disadvantage to uh, using a four-piece rod versus a two-piece rod for a fish that powerful. None whatsoever. Not with today's modern rods. Uh, i give you an example. I've fished with, uh, am I allowed to mention manufacturers here? You already mentioned about 15 of them, so. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> well, I fished with T&T, with, with Sage, with, uh, I mean, these are very expensive. They're very, very good rods, but I have switched over to Temple Fork. I mean, Lefty switched over and is now promoting the rods. So I took uh, some to Alaska. In fact, I talked the lodge into ordering all of their lodge rods from Temple Fork. Now, we used two-piece rods for the lodge only because they were less money. But I had four-piece rods uh, in several different sizes that I used, and they worked great, not one single problem. Uh, I mean, you can still break the rod if you candy cane it, that is, lift the rod straight up in the air, and you've got a big, powerful fish pulling a, uh, just imagine a candy cane on the tip section, uh, it's going to break, whether it's a one-piece, two-piece, or four-piece. But four-piece rods, no, I love them. And they're a heck of a lot better and easier to get through the airports yeah. without someone driving a truck over your rod case. <laughs> you know, if you can just put them in your luggage. Uh, perfect. And then what about, uh, we, we did to try to clean up this equipment thing, and then let's uh, let's move on to flies. Um do you have a preferred knot uh, going from the, the tippet to the fly? I use improved clinch. Okay. On uh, a 12-pound tippet, I'll only put three twists in the improved clinch rather than five. Uh, but that's, uh, and I do that even on uh, uh, big critters. And I, that's, that's just, that's really subjective. Uh, I think it's a good knot. It's close to 100% knot. Uh, I try to use 100% uh, knots wherever possible. 100% um, meaning uh, once you tie a knot in monofilament, some some knot designs, you know, if you start off with a 20-pound test, 
at the knot, you might lose half of that value and only have 10 pounds before it will break at the knot. Right. So you have to be careful. And any good book on knots, uh, Lefty Craze uh, uh, and Mark Sosen has a, a great book out. I've used it for years, and it explains the knot strength of, of all the popular knots. But improved clinch, good knot. Okay. Um, as a transition into flies, Pete, can you tell us, are, are kings feeding as they're coming up the river and when they take a fly, or why are they hitting a fly? You know, that's a great question. You can't imagine how often that's been debated around the guide meetings late at night at the lodge. Uh, uh, the consensus seems to be that they're territorial, that they're hitting the fly out of uh, protection or something that's invading their territory because we don't think that they're feeding. Yet, if they're not feeding, why is the color so important? Uh, the fuchsia color is the most dominant fly for Alaska, the most dominant color. Not pink. Pink will work, but fuchsia seems to be working really great. Uh, I don't know. I have a theory that maybe it vaguely resembles the shrimp that they used to feed on or krill in the, when they were in the ocean. Uh, I don't know, but... They don't think that they're actually feeding. They think that they're protecting their territory. They meaning the uh, the scientists and the people who have investigated that. <laughs> Pete, we've got a, a question from one of our previous guest speakers on the show, Pudge Kleinkoff up in Anchorage, and I think she's oh, a friend Pudge, here. Oh, Pudge, yeah. Great Hi, writer, Pete. Expert. Long time no see. <laughs> yeah. So um, she's anxious to hear what your favorite uh, – your three favorite flies are for king salmon and how you fish them. Okay. Well, Pudge, I like the bunny leech. I like everybody else. Uh, and I tie it. Uh, if you look at the picture of the flies on that web page. Yeah, let me, uh, let me describe where those are real quick, Pete. Okay. Um, if you go to Pete's uh, speakers page, from their home page, it says more about uh, Pete Parker. You go there. Go to the bottom of that page, and you'll see a couple of links. One says Pete's King Salmon Flies, and that's where you'll see those bunny leeches. And then uh, we'll talk about the other one later, but there's another link below that. But that's if you go there now, you can see what he's describing. Go ahead, Pete. Yeah, and uh, I tie it with llama fur, Pudge, uh, with uh, some sparkle mixed in, making a dubbing brush and a bunny skin tail. And the colors, uh, chartreuse, pink, fuchsia, um, those are proven killers. And you'll see a uh, prototype there of a diving bug made out of foam. And uh, th those are handmade by my friend Dan Vipert over in Thailand as an experimental model. I took them up to Alaska this summer, and they were great on the Kings. So they'll be offered commercially for next year, and the lodge has already placed a huge order for uh, these things. Um, the, the people pulling plugs generally outfish the fly fishermen quite a bit, sometimes 10 to 1. And trying to level that playing field, uh, the, the gear guys are using a plug called a wiggle wart. And this fly is handmade, hand-tied onto the hook, 
and it acts just like a wiggle wart. It dives and wobbles in the water column and drives the fish crazy. So, But then I always have a magic bullet that I'm in love with until the next one comes along. And that's my uh, my favorite flies for uh, kings. Look, looking at the, the pictures there, there is quite a bit of difference in size, and you had mentioned that before. What what size hooks do you use for these? You look at that big one. That's a four-aught longshank Daiichi hook, and that's used in the tidal zone down where the water is turbid, may not have good clarity, so I want to move a lot of water and have a big fly to do that. As I move further upstream, I'll use the smaller bunny leech, which is the little pink one with the lead eyes on that picture. And uh, as the water gets more clear, I think downsizing is a good idea. The, the, the guys in the Midwest have taught us that with steelhead running up out of lake out of the Great Lakes. Uh, those guys use very small flies compared to the West Coast steelheaders, and they really work. Skip over in Washington State uh, has apparently had experience with sea-run cutthroats and, and silvers, but he's wondering about what you would use for flies on kings out in open salt water. Yeah, that's Skip Morris. He's a good friend. Uh, by the way, Skip has written probably yeah. 30 different books on fly tying. Yeah. And he has the best book out there, I think, in my opinion, for beginning fly tying. But thank you, Skip, for your question. I like the big llama-furred bunny leech out in the open water. And I haven't fished that much. I've only fished offshore, not any distance, but a few hundred yards from the mouth of the river out in the ocean. I couldn't talk the uh, skipper to take the boat out any further because, as you know, that portion of uh, Alaskan coastline can be really, really rough water. And uh, those little uh, flat-bottom jet boats we have running the rivers aren't the best thing to go out in the, uh, in the blue water. In. But uh, the bigger flies, and I think they're the, they're, they are taking them for shrimp or krill. And, in fact, those, that, that water he's talking about is... If you watch TV and, and you watch those shows, those on-the-edge shows where they're catching crab and so forth, mm -hmm. that's that's that Bristol Bay area. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it can be pretty airy out there. Yeah. The um, um, the other fly that um, I don't know if this is this is true or not here, or if this is just a joke, but Sandy in, in California talked about uh, a propeller fly. And um, she wants to know is if you tie – well, first of all, I want to know, is, is a propeller fly for real? Uh, and she wants to know if it is, is it tied with radfloss, cerise uh, streamer, or, or what? So she has some specifics that I'm not aware of. So okay. tell us about yes, this it propeller can be fly. tied with radfloss. Uh, radfloss is a body material. It's a braid, uh, braided body material that's wonderful. And I use quite a bit of it as an underbody, uh, just wrapped on the shank of the hook. Uh, and then it might be uh, hidden by the llama fur or the pink bunny fur or whatever. But whenever the water movement moves that material around, you get this glimpse of the silver underbody. Hmm. So, yes, there is red floss 
used on these flies. And the propeller fly is for real. Uh, started off several years ago on a trip to Belize. And uh, I thought that the jacks would like this fly. I got on a school of jacks, threw the fly out, and the barracuda came and took the fly. Well, you have to rig with wire for barracuda. Four times in a row, I tied on one of these prop flies, threw it out, and the barracuda came and ate the fly. And I was swearing and mumbling and scavenging son of a gun. And wait a minute, maybe what I've got is a barracuda fly. <laughs> so I rigged with wire and proceeded to have a really great time catching those huge barracuda. I gave a few to Gary Borger. He went down to Belize and pronounced it the greatest barracuda fly he'd ever used in his life. Now that's the anchovy version, the saltwater version. It has since been used in uh, Midway. The greatest day of fishing in my life was at Midway Atoll a few years back. And uh, it was the difference in night and day. Uh, we were having an average day fishing, and one of the fellows tied on a prop fly, started getting a hookup on, at the most, every other cast. And uh, everybody switched. And it was like turning a light switch on to slow, to average fishing, to fish on every cast. So the prop fly is real. It's what got me to Alaska the first time, uh, to good news. I think the ones that you're talking about for Alaska, we can kind of see in, you, in that picture that, that the link says Pete's Flies. I think it's the, the third and fourth one up the column there. You can kind of see a little propeller there on the end. Uh -huh. um, and, and you can also, on that same page, if there is a link to Pete's Prop Fly, which is the, the, more the Barracuda version that he's talking about. Uh, and fly tying instructions there, and then there's a nice picture of Pete there too. Uh, but you can you can kind of convert that right the the base of that, and then go and, and create your your king salmon fly that you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, Borger put a name to it. He says it's the acoustic footprint. Uh, <laughs> it's not the flash or the it's the vibrations created uh, that that seem to trigger the strikes in these fish. And it's it's really a great fly. Now, some people are put off with the propeller. I mean, it's is it a lure or is it a fly? Uh, I happen to think it's tied on a hook by a person, myself, and it's a fly. But uh, other people would uh, shy away from that. But it works, folks. It really works great. And then tell us how it got you to Alaska. You were starting, I kind of interrupted you there. Oh. But. Uh, I sent a few flies down to uh, Mike Gordon, who lives in uh, Key West. He took a client out. He guides through the winter down there. He called me and said, I happen to own a lodge in Alaska. If you could tie that fly in fuchsia or pink and make it a little bigger, I think the kings would love it. Why don't you come up to the lodge this summer? And that's a $6,000 a week lodge, and I got a free ride up there and started showing the other guides how to tie this thing and showing the clients. And we had such a good time that I got I was up there three or four more times after that. Uh, and then last this, this summer ended up working up there as a guide. Very effective pattern, catches uh, any number of uh, uh, saltwater critters. And uh, there's a tackle shop owner here in Colorado 
uh, named Cannon. Jim Cannon owns Blue Quill Angler. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a very, very good fly tire on little tiny dries with delicate presentation and trout fishing. He tied a prop fly, a, an average woolly booger, about a size 10, smaller size, and went out and got a 32-inch rainbow <laughs> and became an instant convert to the propeller. <laughs> now, many of his guides carry that fly with them when they have a client or a slow day and it's really hard getting their client to catch a decent fish, they'll take that little prop fly out and say, here, let's try this. And it saved many a day for those guys. That's terrific, Pete. Let's take a quick break here, and when we return, maybe Pete will tell us about his helicopter fly. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's top secret uh, for, for your eyes only kind of stuff, but maybe we can pry it out of him. So. The Federation of Fly Fishers offers fly anglers the world over an opportunity to play an active role in the future of our sport. Their conservation projects can have immediate as well as long-lasting impacts. Their education programs attract veterans as well as newcomers and youth who will carry the banner for years to come. The FFF Code of Ethics is worthy of your review and your support. You'll be proud to be part of this organization which promotes the well-being of all fisheries, fresh and salt water alike. Consider a gift membership to the Federation for someone you care for. Memberships range from only $15 for annual youth through $500 for an individual lifetime membership. Go to www.askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the Federation logo or go to www.fedflyfishers.org for more information and to find an active club chapter near you. Well, Pete, uh, we're back here and everybody, we're listening to, you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio with Pete Parker talking about king salmon in Alaska. Uh, if you do write, uh, want to ask Pete a question, you can go to our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask Pete your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. I have to warn you, though, we've gotten just a ton of questions in. We're not going to get to them all. We're trying to cherry pick some here, and we're going to have to move really fast here at the end. But um, we do appreciate all the questions you folks send in. That's what makes this show uh, real successful. Well, Pete, I, I kind of teased him on the, the helicopter fly, but you've you got to make this story short because we've got to cover presentation strategies here and, and how to take a trip up to Alaska. So tell us about the okay. helicopter fly. Real quickly, I was asked years ago to tie a dry fly for use in the ocean, and the only occasion I could think of where a saltwater denizen took a dry was when the big shark ate the helicopter in the movie Jaws 2. So I tied a helicopter, work uh, with a rotate with a rotor that spins and uh, pontoons and the whole bit, just as a joke. Uh, I sent out uh, copies of this fly to uh, Chico Fernandez and Lefty Cray and uh, Dave Whitlock and several of the. I tied a hundred of them. Everybody wanted one. Nobody ever caught a fish on one. It was just a, an amusement. And uh, uh, Robert Benchley, uh, not Robert Benchley, Peter Benchley, uh, wrote me and asked, he, the guy who wrote Jaws, he wanted a uh, <laughs> helicopter fly, so he got a copy. And uh, that was the story of the helicopter fly. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, let's talk just a little bit about uh, 
the presentations, you, you mentioned fishing seams. Uh, do kings hang out in, in runs or pools? Where, 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 where are we looking? Okay, there will be, uh, quite often there will be structure in the rivers. I mean uh, a ledge or a bar or uh, uh, like along a bank, you might have uh, two feet of sh very shallow water, then it'll drop off and like a wall. And uh, kings will hang out next to that wall in the slower water. Uh, they always hang out in the current seams. They very seldom do you find them like uh, trout in a pool with the, you know, at the head or the or the base of the pool. Uh, but they will hang out off points of land, structure. Uh, it seems to be where, and that, the points of land help direct these current seams that I was talking about. Give you an example. On the Good News River, uh, we had holes, names for each of the holes. And we could always count on kings being there. And at each of those holes, there was structure that caused the water current to vary and form very distinct seams. Sometimes it was right next to the bank, sometimes it was out in the middle of the river. But uh, always had that, that slow water, fast water, uh, allowing the fish to rest in slow water and then um, get out in uh, fast water when uh, they decided to move upstream. Um, what kind of? Know, what? That doesn't sound like a very clear answer, but that's how it is. Well, how do you? What what kind of casting techniques then do you use as you as you work these seams? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Uh, what kind of casting techniques do you use when you work the seams? Boy, I mean, it's uh, not a kind of. You're stripping. You're dead drifting down through there. You're casting up and across. How do you work the water? Ah, okay. Typically, you're stripping, and like any other uh, like any other streamer fishing, it pays to vary the strip. Sometimes you do a, uh, a long 18-inch woolly booger pull, uh, and you might vary the speed of that. You might pull very slowly and then try it a little faster, sometimes little short strips. Uh, and you'll find one that, uh, that works. And, uh, but typically, you're stripping. Uh, sometimes you, on occasion, I will let, I'll cast into the current, and on the when the fly swings tight in the current, you'll get a pick up there, and that's dead drift. Um, and then I'll begin a strip back upstream towards the, the boat or the bank wherever I'm standing. And uh, quite often, the kings will follow the fly right up to the boat, or almost up to your feet if you're standing on a gravel bar, say. So you have to play out each cast. Uh, and keep an eye out for uh, right behind your fly, because a lot of times there'll be this four-foot-long torpedo uh, trying to decide whether or not to bite it or not. Pete, uh, Nathan Eric over in Calgary, Alberta, uh, wonders, do the techniques that you apply up in Alaska, do you think they will apply uh, on the coast of BC or in Washington or Oregon and California streams? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've fished uh, the Northern California streams. I've fished a little bit in Oregon, and I got a chance to fish out of uh, uh, Washington a, a little bit when ISC used to have shows there in Seattle, and we'd always combine the, uh, 
appearance at the show with a couple days fishing. Uh, I fished, um, I think it's St. Edwards Island off uh, BC, off the coast. Uh Um, And the techniques are the same in all of those places. And he also asked, as a second part of his question, um, what what do you think is – is it better uh, salmon fishing in Alaska than these these southern waters, British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, or, and if so, what makes them better? I think they're better only because of the size of the runs, the number of fish involved. There seems okay. to be fewer and fewer salmon uh, the further south you get. Uh, I know that years ago Jim Teeny made uh, uh, quite quite a few big kings in Oregon. Um, I understand from what I hear that that has changed and it's no longer as easy as it once was. But in Alaska, the numbers are still there. And uh, that's for that reason, I think uh, it's preferable. If for a salmon fisherman, that, w- that would be my first destination. Hogan Brown down in uh, Chico, California, wonders, uh, he's used uh, strike indicators uh, for salmon uh, down in California, and wonders if uh, people use those up in Alaska. I've never seen one used in Alaska. I understand the concept, and I use them for trout, but I've never used one. Um, of course, I'm a headhunter. I go after uh, the big fish, and you don't need a strike indicator. There's nothing delicate about the take. It's like a freight train when they take the fly. Um, as a general rule, there are occasions when it'll be very gentle. Uh, the biggest fish I caught, which was uh, just over 50 pounds, I thought it was a 20-pound king when it first hit because the thing was gentle, but not that gentle. I mean, it was still a substantial tug. And uh, when I got up to where I could see the fish and it was uh, over four feet long, then I went, holy smokes. So, but no, uh, I've never used strike indicators. I've never seen them used. Okay. Well, from the other side of the country, Kevin Casey up in New York State wonders uh, what your feelings are about uh, sinking-type leaders, say, as opposed to split shot on on a leader in uh, real high-flow streams. I love them. I much prefer them to split shot. The split shot causes that hinge effect whenever you're casting. drives you crazy. Uh, I like uh, sinking leaders. Uh, I was explaining to uh, a bit earlier this evening uh, I rig with a sink tip or a sinking line and only about 40 inches of uh, leader. Um, very, very, very short leader. Um, so I don't use the sinking leaders all that often because I'm not using like a 12, 15-foot leader. I'm using a very short leader. Mm-hmm. But yes, I, I agree. I would use uh, the sinking leader in a heartbeat over a split shot. And what we had talked about um, earlier, Pete, uh, you're tying that, that tippet with that bimini twist uh, directly to the end of the line. You, you really don't have much of a, a leader out there in the first place, right? No, you're, three feet, maybe four feet max. Right. All, um, so that's getting it down there. And then you've got uh, your flies are weighted as well. These bunny flies are weighted, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, some are and some aren't because um, – If the current, it depends on the current. If the current's really strong, you want to get that fly down there and hold it at a certain level, then I'll use the weighted flies. If if the tide is slacked off or the current is slacked off, 
then I'll use uh, the flies without weight and just rely on the sink tip line to get the fly down. Now, um, just to kind of finish up with the, the fish, and then let's just talk real quickly about trips and planning. Uh, when, we're, when you, were, you, you pretty much talked about hooking that fish, um, uh, and uh, could you just elaborate a little bit more on fighting and, and landing, any tips you can give there? Absolutely. I use a method called the down and dirty, and <laughs> Stu App taught me the method. He's a great tarpon fisherman. And all the down and dirty is you keep the rod tip very, very close to the water. You don't have it up at a 45-degree angle or sticking up in the air. You've got the rod tip pointed right at the water. And once you get the fish in close enough, by close enough I mean mm, 50, 150 feet, some, somewhere in that neighborhood, and you can see that the fish is, say, swimming to the left. You take that rod and you pull to the right. When the fish turns and heads towards the right, you put the rod back over and you pull to the left. You constantly keep that fish off balance. And this gets more important as the fish gets closer to the boat. You can actually spin those fish on, their, on, their, on a dime when they get tired and they get frustrated. Uh, then they'll go on their sides and you can land them. And it's much easier on the fish. You can beat them quicker. I've seen guys do, uh, uh, I saw Stu Apt beat uh, Marlin in minutes where it's a several hour fight normally uh, using the down and dirty. And uh, it's getting uh, more acceptance. I brought it to all my clients last summer and uh, all the many about half of the guides had had seen it or heard about it, and uh, it's a very very good technique for beating big fish quickly. Pete uh, Ryan Custis down in uh, Kentucky would like to know a ballpark figure about what a, a guided trip up to Alaska for kings would run, not counting the airfare, which of course would vary for everyone. You've kicked around yeah. some figures. Well, the, the fancy lodges, now where I worked this summer was a $6,200 a week lodge, 6250 or so. That's kind of pricey. Um, I think that you can still get a, a pretty good trip for around the $2,200, $2,100 uh, guided trip. Uh, you, can do, you can do less than that if you get a float trip. Um, the best thing to do would be to uh, uh, oh, go to uh, www.travelalaska.com and ask for their book, which is a guide on where to stay and uh, different outfitters and whatnot. That visitor's guide to Alaska is a good source for outfitters. And... Uh, I would think my first trip to Alaska, I did it for $900 portal to portal, including airfare from Denver. Now, that was 20 years ago, so it'd be more <laughs> now. But still, uh, you can do it uh, very, very reasonable, or, uh, you know, you can spend a fortune. Uh, but I think that there's still good quality fishing available at a, at a uh, fairly reasonable price up in Alaska. And we did talk earlier in the night about, um, 
you know, the options to to work out of Anchorage, do some maybe one or two day trips, uh, camp out on the river, have the plane come pick you up. Uh, the float trips where they drop you at the top of the river and pick you up a week later. So if you're willing to do the work and the cooking, uh, there's a lot of inexpensive ways to, to fish Alaska. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sure are. Well, uh, Pete, I hate to say this, but uh, we've got to wrap things up here. we got more, tons of more questions, but we're out of time tonight. In fact, we're over time. We're going to have to move rather quickly here. So, um, uh, folks, stick with us for a few more minutes. Uh, we're going to do the drawing for the Fly Fusion magazine and the tickets to the ISE shows. Uh, so we'll, we'll be right back. Stay tuned to see if you win. Well, it's obvious we're going to have to have Pete back to follow up on some more of these questions. <laughs> yes, no doubt. Women's Fly Fishing in Alaska is owned and operated by well-known guide Pudge Kleinkoff. Women's Fly Fishing offers several lodge-based fly fishing schools for women as well as an array of small guided small group guided trips for women and couples to some of Alaska's best-known waters for salmon, rainbow, arctic grayling, and char. Pudge also leads saltwater fly fishing groups to Mexico each spring, and beginners are welcome. Equipment is provided. Learn more about fly fishing for women at www.womensflyfishing.net or email them at pudge at womensflyfishing.net. Phone number 907-274-7113. That's 907-274-7113 and pudge at womensflyfishing.net. On our events calendar tonight, we see that the Southern Council of the Federation of Fly Fishers has an active organization in Arkansas. Uh, Roger, this sounds like a group that I could have fun fishing with. The Russellville, Arkansas Caddis Fly Fishing Club, CADIS. That's Central Arkansas Dead Drifters Ichthyological Society. Their monthly meeting is Monday, December 11th at Ryan's Restaurant in Russellville. Public is welcome. Dinner's optional. Starts at 6. The guest will be well-known radio and television personality Steve Wilson, who's also a public affairs coordinator for the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. For more details, go to the global events calendar on askaboutflyfishing.com and select Arkansas. Remember, list any fly fishing-related events yourself on our events calendar. And don't forget to remind your local clubs and fly shops to list their fly fishing-related happenings on the calendar. We'll be highlighting one event from the calendar on each of our shows. Well, just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please leave your comments. There's a link for feedback on the homepage in Pete's section. We'd love to hear what you thought of the show. Uh, now it's time to give away a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine. So uh, what we do and is to uh, let our computer pick from our registration database. If you haven't registered by now, it's too late, but uh, be sure you register next time so you don't miss out on, on any of these great gifts we give away. So I'm going to pick the winner real quick here for the Fly Fusion one-year subscription, and it's going to be Teresa Adams. Teresa Adams and she's in California, yeah. Teresa yeah. Adams. So congratulations. Teresa's and uh, Teresa, we will contact you after the show to, to get the information on, uh, you know, getting you that, uh, that subscription. And now we have two pairs of tickets to the ISE shows. Now these are in um, uh, Colorado, Utah, uh, Arizona, a couple in California. So let me pick the winners here. 
And I press my magic button, and I have Barton Jennings of Colorado, Barton Jennings. So we'll have two tickets for you. We'll get your information, and um, uh, you'll be picking those up at Will Call at the, at the Den uh, well, Denver show because you're in Colorado. So I assume that's the one you want to go to unless you want to go to another one. doesn't make any difference to us. Yeah, Barton's then, a great uh, source of questions. Yeah, yeah. Now uh, let me pick the, the second winner for the second pair of tickets, and it is... David Rasmussen, uh, he too is from Colorado, uh, so I assume he'll go to the Colorado show as well. So David Rasmussen and Barton Jennings won the tickets to the ISC show. Congratulations. Yeah, they'll, they'll enjoy those. Well, Pete, uh, gosh, we want to thank you uh, uh, for joining us tonight. Uh, I've, I've learned a ton, and I, I'm really anxious to get a crack at some of those big kings up there. I want to thank you for taking time to share your experience with us. Uh, uh, it's pretty clear, uh, based on the volume of questions that remain unanswered, that we're going to have to think about uh, enticing you to come back sometime. Sure, be happy to. Great, great. Thank you, Pete, and uh, uh, we loved having you. It's been great tonight. We had a lot of fun, and uh, I look forward to the next time as well. And everybody, don't forget, look Pete up at these ISE shows and get to know him. He's a nice guy. <laughs> he'll shake your hand, and he'll teach you a lot, I guarantee you. Yep. Well, our next broadcast will be on uh, December 20th at 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. And on that show, we're going to be interviewing Chico Fernandez, and our topic for the show will be Snook on the Hook. Chico Fernandez has fly-fished for over 40 years. He's broken several wor world records. Notably, the largest redfish taken with a fly rod at 42 pounds, 5 ounces. He is also one of the first to land a white marlin on a fly rod. But guess what? His real passion is snook. So listen in next time to find out Chico's secrets on fly fishing for these incredible game fish. We'd like to thank R.O. Winston Rod Company, International Sportsman's Expositions, the Federation of Fly Fishers, and Women's Fly Fishing in Alaska for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. And feel free to explore the other areas of our site, like the events calendar and the directories. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.